0: Cameras are like essentially all the same. They have the same basic features. You know, sensors may be bigger or smaller. Um, buttons may be in different places. But I think what I learned over time, like, is that at the core, it's it's really just about the image, and then that's the part that that I love.
1: Jenny, I feel like I've said this before, but this time, <laughs> this episode with Vanessa Carr is my favorite one. My favorite interview yet.
2: Yeah, you keep saying that and I, no, I don't know whether to, to take you seriously anymore.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, they just keep getting better and better. The, the female perspective, the female DP perspective, I personally very much identify with and I just loved everything that you guys talked about. Who is Vanessa Carr, Jenny?
2: Yeah, so so Vanessa Carr is a very prolific cinematographer. She's done all sorts of work, commercial, documentary, short news things for PBS Frontline, Vice, HBO, One of the reasons we wanted to have her on now is because she recently shot a bunch
1: of episodes for the New York Times, the weekly Mm -hmm. series on Hulu and FX, which everyone seems to be talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing what they're doing. She
2: also right now is shooting this six part docuseries, this verite docuseries for Disney plus Disney's new streaming platform Mm -hmm. about the American ballet school in Manhattan so she's working on some really awesome stuff.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing. And I loved, I think my favorite part of the interview was she talks about how she learned about the art of cinematography and DPing on, in different realms, so to speak. But there is this consistent theme about it's good to learn the equipment and that's so necessary. And yet the true art lies in kind of getting out of the way and letting the truth and the magic of what is going on IRL in the story itself just unfold.
2: Yeah like it's easy to kind of get and we talk about this it's easy to sort of get caught up in the the language of cinematography mm-hmm. and forget that it's really just about creating a cinematic image and and the story The story yeah at the, at the heart of it. For sure well should we jump in? Yes. So this is cinematographer Vanessa Carr, and you're listening to Rough Cut. Here we go.
0: Hey, I'm Stephanie Strauss. I'm a video producer, director, and sometimes shooter, and I'm here to tell you about MusicBed. MusicBed has made it easier than ever for you to find the song you're looking for. With intuitive and easy-to-use browse and search, amazing indie artists and bands, incredible composers like Ryan Taubert and Chad Lawson, and thousands of songs to choose from. To create your free account and learn more, go to musicbed.com. Plus, as a Rough Cut listener, you'll get a one-month subscription for free or 20% off a single song license. Just enter promo code ROUGHCUT when you check out.
2: Thank you so much for doing this, Vanessa. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Could you tell us how you broke into this industry and what your first gig was in cinematography
0: Sure so I came to the industry I, through a very un, kind of circuitous path I have always loved documentary but I never ever thought about it as like a viable career path I graduated from college in 2005 and was living in San Francisco at the time where you could kind of get by on very little money. Um, So I started, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I started just like looking at a catalog of community college classes um, through City College of San Francisco and just thought I would take a few classes for things that jumped out at me. And I saw a couple of journalism, like writing classes, and I thought, huh, that sounds kind of interesting. It was like feature writing. In my first assignment, I had to like write a profile of someone. And so I found so much a profile and picked up the phone and like asked them a million questions. And I just loved it. Like the idea that you could reach out to a stranger and ask them a million really nosy questions. Like there was something about it that I just absolutely loved. And so I thought I wanted to do have a career in like magazine writing. So um, at the at around that time, the economy crashed and I was like basically collecting unemployment And I really feel lucky, actually, because because I was collecting unemployment, I was able to do a few unpaid internships in journalism that I feel like very lucky to have. I really didn't have any experience other than these few classes I had taken at City College. And so I like interned at the San Francisco Bay Guardian and I somehow got a uh, internship at the Center for Investigative Reporting. But I would not have been able to do them if I wasn't like collecting unemployment. So anyway... That's
2: why welfare uh, programs are so important.
0: Yeah. Thanks, (laughs) Obama. Um, So anyway, I applied to the journalism school at UC Berkeley and sort of for the writing program and miraculously, like, they accepted me. And this was in 2009. And right around that time, the Canon 5D had just been released. And I really sort of... That camera played a huge role in turning me towards... Sort of visual journalism. I decided to take, try the TV documentary track. And basically, once I got my hands on a camera, I just, it sort of changed everything for me. It was also, you know, I think the Canon 5D ushered in this whole era of cinematic documentary f- film making cinematic imagery sort of accessible to documentary budgets. You know, if you look at documentaries like through the 90s and even like through the sort of like aughts, they look so video compared with sort of filmic quality of documentaries that we've become accustomed to today. When you picked
2: up the 5D, what like clicked in your brain that you were like, oh, I actually kind of want to focus more on the visuals than just being a writer or just focusing on the story?
0: I think that I just really, like, it just sort of, I don't know how to describe it exactly. Like, I just really liked it. I think when you're sort of not sure what you want to do with your life, if you focus on sort of what you do in your spare time. And when I looked back and realized, like, I had interned for several documentary filmmakers in college, even though it just seemed like fun. Like, it didn't seem like anything related to a career. Like, I was organizing film screenings. I was part of the, like, filmmaking club in undergrad. I had made, a doc- like, a horrible documentary when I was in college, just, like, taught myself Final Cut Pro just with the equipment that you could, like, check out. And I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I don't know. I just sort of slowly started to play with the idea of... Um, switching over and and the Berkeley Journalism program is two years, so they're very flexible about sort of encouraging students to try different media. Um, And so by my second year I had sort of committed to just focusing on like visual journalism. I think the other thing that encouraged me was that it seemed like from from a freelance perspective that it was easier to make a living um, in video than it was doing writing you know I was drawn to like longer form journalism and so it but it just seems like such a hard path and you know I think the other reason that the 5D played a really big role in my sort of career development is that for a very short window of time you could and I think much to the chagrin of many like video professionals you could get a 5D and hang your shingle and call yourself a director of photography even though you might not have, not have any idea what you're doing and you could kind of get away with it for short it was everyone was freaking out over this sort of shallow depth of field and for a short time I feel like shooting on a 5D with a zoom recorder stuck on the top of it was sort of a legitimate way to operate mm-hmm. and so I at, towards the end of my the end of grad school, I like cashed out a bunch of extra student loans and I was able to buy like a 5D and some lenses and basically like a minimally viable package. Mm -hmm. And I literally just sort of like hung my shingle and started calling myself a DP, even though it was sort of absurd to do so. How
2: did you get your first job as a DP?
0: It was sort of like I took whatever I could get. So in the beginning, I wasn't just shooting. I was also taking like editing jobs. And I even did like, I know nothing about graphic design. I even like took on a book design project that somehow came across my path and then had to like get my graphic designer friend to save me because I had no idea what I was doing basically when you're starting out people have to take a chance on you when you really don't have a lot of experience so one of my like early shoots that was sort of put my feet to the fire I it was just a few months after I would graduated I really didn't have a ton of shooting experience while I was in grad school I tried to like get my hands on as many cameras as I could so like I shot other people's thesis films I like like would do music videos or like little side pieces. I just was like trying to shoot as much as I possibly could. But um, the first big gig that I got was a couple days shooting on the PBS series Live from the, I think it's Live from the Artist Den. It's a live like concert series that they have on PBS and it came through like an alumna of the journalism program who had passed my name along. And basically I was, it was sort of the first of a number of jobs where I was in like totally over my head. I didn't even know like how over my head I was, um, so I showed up for the job and it was the c three hundred had just come out, mm-hmm. but I didn't have I'd never seen it before. I'd never had access to it. Was this yeah. like twenty ten or this must have been like twenty 11 summer of 2011. Anyway, long story short, I like show up on this shoot. It's an enormous crew. I mean, it's like a live television broadcast, so there's jibs and like a whole lighting team and the C300 and I had done a little bit of like looking online at manuals, but I really didn't even know like practically where the power button was and the lens that was on this camera was it's this enormous, and I've never like shot with this lens since, but the lens probably weighs like 60 pounds. It's an absolutely, it practically needs like, I mean, the size of the tripod head, it's just this enormous rig. And I was just so nervous. And that was the first of like many times that I've had, you know, especially early on where I really had to rely on the AC. It ended up being completely fine and I totally pulled it off and actually on that what I learned is that often on like the higher level productions when you have like two layers of AC you don't actually need to know anything really like everything's set up for you like the tripod head is balanced all of the like like remote focus controls are already set up and essentially I was just like zooming in and zooming out on a very smooth like servo zoom controller. But I had a number of jobs like that early on where I somehow would get, someone would pass my name along and it was, I was like really in over my head. Um, Yeah, it's trial by fire. Yeah, and just, you know, especially on larger crews because in journalism school everything's like really small and it's like maybe sound and like camera and producer but having 20 people on set or having to wear like a walkie-talkie, I mean, I remember the first time I had to like, it was actually a reality show, but it was to this day the largest crew I've ever worked on. I mean, there were so many people and so we were all in walkie-talkies and there's this whole lingo, like film industry lingo around like how you talk over the walkies and I, I didn't know it at all you know, someone asked me, like, what's your 20? Which means, like, where are you? And I had yeah. no idea what it was. And there's... So I think... Yeah, it's there... like a whole language. And if you're not in that world, it's yeah, super intimidating. It can be really intimidating. And, you know, I think that's one of... As a DP, I do feel like there's been some limitations how I've come up. Like, many DPs that I meet have assisted for people for many years, worked as an AC, um, kind of, like, come up from the through the camera department and... I think that there can be like a huge value in learning that way because you know you sort of learn from you learn from masters and you kind of you know you learn all the things and then you kind of get your shot at operating and I sort of didn't Come up that way, and so I had to. I've had to learn a lot of things in the field in ways that can sometimes be a little bit like humiliating. One of the first times that I had an opportunity to shoot on an HBO project, and I was working with a a much older sound guy. Um, at a certain point in the shoot, when no one else was around, he said to me, "Like, did anyone ever show you how to wrap a C stand properly?" And I was like, "No." Because we didn't have we didn't have C stands like in grad school. Can you at, explain to our listeners what a C stand is? Um, so a C stand is like a is a, a stand that's typically used for lighting, but can be used for like holding anything up um, that has sort of three legs that spin out and typically has like an arm that. That comes up and down so there's just sort of like a way of getting all the knobs to line up properly and if you don't really know you can really be struggling and there's sort of there's just been a lot of things like that that I've had to learn by doing which for many years um, I was sort of an over preparer like I was a really good student and I wanted to always be prepared and I wanted to study and you know do things right and so this to sort of be Learning in this way was really uncomfortable for me and really stress could be really stressful at times but I think like when you think about it it doesn't really matter like a lot of the sort of film industry lingo and you know like whether you can wrap a cable properly like it does have a, an important role but I think it can scare people off or it can make things more intimidating than they need to be because you know at the core Cameras are, like, essentially all the same. They have the same basic features. There may be, you know, sensors may be bigger or smaller. Um, you know, buttons may be in different places. But I think what I learned over time, like, is that if you can try to tune out all of the, you know, complicated sets or complicated rigging, like, at the core, it's it's really just about the image. And, like, and then that's the part that that I love if you could talk to yourself now
2: as someone who's like coming up in this industry and kind of like learning in the field,
0: what advice would you give yourself? I guess advice that I would pass along that maybe I think I did sort of follow myself is that, you know, because I didn't come up through a camera department, I didn't really feel like I had mentors. You know, I had the um, my professors in school and there were people that I admired, but I... I didn't really necessarily felt like feel like I had people I could turn to to ask questions, and so what I started doing is I started basically just reaching out to people that I met um, and asking them, even though they didn't offer to like help me, um, that they may have found my questions to be irritating. Were they like specific questions? Yeah, I mean, like everything. So, like one example would be. In a lot of documentary productions with lighting, for example, you have, there's not a huge budget. So it's not like you can pick any light that you want for a certain job. You are often working with, like, whatever kit you can afford or whatever you've worked with before. But, like, when given sort of a choice of any light from from a rental house or off of, like, a truck, like, which one do you choose? And so I started reaching out to, like, some gaffers that I knew who, you know, were sort of also coming up but just asking for their opinion or like asking I would say like this is my location this is what we're going for like what do I choose because as I started to kind of come up and there would be more resources for for projects I felt like I didn't I didn't really know Um, I think that if I think one thing I wish I had done more of is like spending more time around rental houses and sort of like maybe shadowing ACs and sort of learning how to do a gear checkout properly so I I sort of wish that I had been a little bit more willing to look foolish in that mm-hmm. you know and I, I think that that's continues to be my advice to myself is like not to be afraid to ask for help for things that you don't know you know I think especially working in the doc world because I also think to a certain extent like you don't really learn until you've I mean you could te- you can go in and test lenses, shoot a lens test, at like a rental house. But until you're really out in the field and working with something, like you don't really know.
2: Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, I mean you've come a long way since 2011. You're now you shot like what
0: like half of the episodes for the New York Times The Weekly series. About half. Um, Less than that. There were three um, DPs who were sort of on staff and then there was a sort of cadre of other freelance DPs that all collaborated. So it was a group effort.
2: Yeah, of course. The show has a very distinct and, and intimate style. Like there's kind of dramatic natural lighting and the interviews, the interviews are shot with a handheld camera. So it feels a little bit shaky. What
0: was your thought process in honing that style? So the style for the show, um, for the most part, we worked exclusively with natural light. There there are some interviews that have supplemental lighting, but is um, we were really encouraged to light off of windows. Um, all of the interviews, which are sort of meant to feel more like, almost like scenes where the journalists are talking with someone as opposed to, like, sitting down for an interview. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, sort it kind of, of feels like, like you're walking into a conversation, not
2: this is an interview.
0: Yeah, so they were mostly shot um, either handheld. I mean, I was either using an easy rig or um, I started to move away from the easy rig and move towards the hip shot, which is, like, one of my favorite tools, um, which is basically a belt that has, it almost looks like a gun holster, but it's, it's a little plastic shelf that kind of pops up and can collapse down that basically goes against your hip. And so you can rest a very heavy camera actually quite comfortably because, you know, the interviews would often last for several hours.
2: Why did your colleagues at the Times have this emphasis on
0: natural light and how common is that? The point of the you know of the show was to follow the Times reporters, sort of not as hosts, but as documentary subjects, and for us to sort of observe their reporting process. And so, I think anytime that you're lighting with natural light, there's already it already feels different because I think we're accustomed to seeing, you know, sort of more traditional three point lighting when you have a two camera interview with like a on camera correspondent and the person they're interviewing. I think this was more intended to feel like, you know, we just showed up at their office or at their home and sat down. And I think that anytime you're lighting off of a window and you're not doing a lot of internal supplementing the light internal like inside the space that much, you're more likely to have a more dramatic ratio, like light ratio of light to dark on mm-hmm. someone's face. And so there was a real leaning into sort of moodiness and allowing like allowing things to be dark not that we wanted it to seem like overly noir mm-hmm. but i think i think kind of somber and real um and and the reality also is that the times reporters you know they're print reporters and they are not television hosts mm-hmm. and i think they were most comfortable when not treated as such and so also removing a lot of the Sort of lighting apparatus, I think, helped that things feel less produced, which was really important. Yeah. And then the other thing is just that, like, when you're shooting these two camera or these two people interviews, one of the other parts of the show, like stylistic parts of the show, that we were sort of emphasized is having sort of working both sides, like both ends of the of the zoom, so extreme wides and like extreme close mm-hmm. close shots, yeah. and so there was always a desire for us to have extreme wide shots that would show two, like the two people talking in a space and if you have lighting fixtures and stands like you really are restricted to certain angles and so anytime that there was lighting we pretty much had to rig it from the ceiling um, because we needed like a 360 degree like field of, of view and so like sometimes we would you know if we were lighting something it would typically be like clamping uh, like Astra um, or like an LED some sort of LED like up by the ceiling to sort of supplement the window light Mm -hmm. and then if we were shooting like at night kind of using practical lights so using lamps we I would always travel with like some different bulbs so that I could swap out people's you know people these days have these horrible like CFL. I mean, it's better for the environment, but, like, terrible for, like, the camera. So, like, trying to work off of someone's, like, natural lighting. Um, I think that one of the things that was interesting about my time on the show was there were these sort of restrictions that we were working inside of. and, And there weren't restrictions in the sense that, like, we could do lighting. But if you're trying as a discipline to sort of only light off of windows, it just sort of is, it's an interesting challenge. And I think that um, each episode, we were given freedom and sort of empowered to create a look for that episode that and really lean into it. Like there wasn't, there were certain things that became sort of the style of the show across the board, but they really encouraged, we were really empowered and I felt really grateful to be empowered for each um, episode to have a look and feel that was unique unto itself yeah. and um, and to sort of use tools that were appropriate to carry out that vision you mentioned like bringing
2: uh, light bulbs with you in case you know you need to change them out at, at someone's apartment or or office or something. What other ways have you learned over time to like prepare for documentary shoots because there's like so many unknowns. Like you may not know what the lighting is going to be like in this space or how much room you'll have to set
0: up or how do you come into a space like the most prepared? So I always try to learn as much as I can about a location as possible. So, if it's possible to get like someone to snap photos of their house, if you're doing an interview in like an office space, trying to get a sense of like what the space is like, um, anytime that I can do a location scout in advance, like I absolutely will always try to do. And then when I'm there, I will always like I use the Sunseeker app to figure out okay, we're shooting this at. 3 p.m. Okay, this the sun is gonna be blazing through these windows. Like, how can I be prepared for that? I mean, the thing that's so hard about documentary is that like so many people have just like horrible lighting in their homes. And sometimes you're just like really backed into to, to a wall and there's like very little that you can do. Um and as far as like other types of preparation, maybe it would be helpful for me to talk about like how so I'm working on this new series um, for Disney Plus that is following a year in the School of American Ballet which is the feeder school for the New York City Ballet. So it's going to be a six part, six one hour episodes. So I've done a little bit of filming dance before but um, some of the ways that I started preparing, um, one is I you know, I asked the director what, what she was watching, what was inspiring to her, and she gave me a list of films, both documentary and narrative. So I will try to watch anything that I can about sort of the topic. So for ballet, I was trying, you know, Frederick Wiseman has a verite film that he did inside of ABT mm-hmm. that he made in the 90s, so I watched that. Um, just paying attention to, like, how dances being shot. And then, you know, also sometimes doing reading. When I was, there was an episode of The Weekly that I did that was about General Motors. And so, you know, I felt like the Midwest and Detroit, um, when I was thinking about sort of the visual style for that episode, I was looking at films from the 70s. I was sort of crowdsourcing, trying to think about films with cars. I was looking at different I rewatched Drive. I mean, I was just trying to sort of immerse myself in like the visual language of cars and factories and yeah, I do try to do as much sort of like just immersive research yeah. and It's like getting your head in the right place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: What do you think makes images cinematic versus
0: just like pointing a camera at something and shooting? That's a really good question. Um well, first of all, I think in documentary, like, emotion is always king, and I try to really f- feel into the story. So I I do feel like images that that really capture emotion, like, I mean, I guess you can capture emotion in a way that's not particularly cinematic. But if you're capturing emotion, nobody, no one really cares. That's um, true, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is about um, composition, like you know, how interesting the shot is. Um, Often shots that have a lot of layering to them, I think can be particularly cinematic. I think when you're using focal range in the service of story, I think that one of the like downsides of the sort of 5D movement was that everyone wanted to just shoot everything like wide open all the time Mm -hmm. and kind of learning, being more thoughtful about what's What's in focus and what's not in focus, and that sometimes actually you want deep focus and mm-hmm. wide open in terms of aperture. Yeah, I just, just want to make that clear. Yeah, 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 wide yeah. open in terms of aperture, so that like so there's like razor thin. Um, you know, I feel like in the fi- in the early days of the five D, it'd be like one like one person's eye one eyeball would be in focus, and like the s- second eyeball would be like out of focus, mm-hmm. and that that was what made a cinematic image. And I think that like with you know, and I and I think there can be these trends. Um, driven by technology that, you know, as something becomes accessible to a lower budget. So now I would say it's like gimbals or, you know, a few years ago it was drones. You know, it could be like, oh, just put a drone shot in. It will be like super cinematic. And then it gets really overused and it'd yeah. be kind of, people get accustomed to seeing it and it actually just, it doesn't strike people at all anymore. It just becomes like, oh yeah, of course a drone shot. Like, I think as far as like what makes a cinematic image I don't know I feel like that's asking like what what is like pornography it's like you know when you see it you know
2: (laughs) I wonder what the next drone shot will be like the next thing that's overused but that's really cool for a while
0: yeah I'm trying to think I mean I feel like where all the like craze right now is about like sensor size and resolution and color Mm -hmm. science um but I you know it's all I mean these are all great like great things basically these cin- tools of cinema that were were never accessible to documentary filmmakers are now like part of our just regular tools in our toolkit and we get to decide like when it's when we want to use them
2: Yeah definitely no it's it's only a good thing I want to go back to this question because I know that our listeners are, like, going to want to know. What is in your tool bag? I'm sure it varies from shoot to shoot, but like, what are the things, like, the tools that you will not go on a shoot without?
0: Yeah, well, one of the things that I, are definitely in my tool bag is, you know, duplicates of everything that could fail. So if, you know, I shoot primarily on an FS7 so that's the camera that I own. So that's the camera I most commonly shoot with. But Why did you choose the FS7? Well, actually, I was a Canon person. And I mean, I think that honestly, we are blessed with so many amazing tools. And I think people can get really caught up in like what camera you're using. I shoot on the FS7 because I found that that's like the most commonly asked for documentary camera mm-hmm. um and it's like something that i can afford so like i if i i would shoot on a like alexa mini um if i could afford it but it's i'm not really getting jobs like documentary jobs that they can afford to pay that kind of camera package mm-hmm. so that's sort of what's accessible to the clients that i'm working for um i i try to use a five inch monitor for monitor like i don't most cameras like onboard, I almost always work with an external monitor. I try to have a backup of like every single cable. So I think I've just had so much so much gear failure when I've been in the field. So I'll like always have backups of everything. A lot of people will shy away from heavy cameras. One of the things I've felt is that the actually the heavier my camera is, often the steadier it is and like the steadier the shots are and that weight can really be your friend. Um, So I'm often, or I'm sometimes shooting with the extension unit for the FS7, which allows you to put external batteries off the back for counterweight. Um, I always shoot with rails because I have a wooden hand grip that I sort of swear by. Having a shoulder plate that allows the camera to be properly balanced on your shoulders, like super important. Before I figured that out, I was, often having cameras that were really front heavy and trying to bear all the weight in my arms, which just like does not make for very steady footage. Yeah. I always bring a polarizer. I often find that I'm in situations where I'm shooting through glass or working with reflections and it it really helps manage like reflections and glare and um, especially on a really bright day. Um, I don't have the most slim kit. Yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes um, I definitely work with producers that, like, wish I had less stuff. Why yeah. is that? Um, just you know, a hassle? Yeah. I mean, I and I can, like, really strip my kit down. But I think just, like, people don't like having a lot of cases or, you know, can, like, weigh you down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, like, the presence
2: aspect of it, too, I'm sure plays into it a bit.
0: Yeah, which, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot about um, this question, because sometimes, like, directors I'm working with or producers will kind of give feedback around, like, okay, we want, like, we really, can we strip this down? Can we make the camera smaller? Can we make this feel smaller? And, you know, we, we want this to be intimate. And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations about, like, not wanting to use certain lenses because they're too big and... um I just really feel like focus on the camera size is often kind of a red, a bit of a red herring, actually, Um, or like or having like using a boom. Like I think sometimes people can feel like, oh, like, let's only use labs because we don't want the boom. And And I do think that like having like a boom mic can change things. But I think that people adapt To the tools. And the weird part is that you're there with the camera, like whether it's a tiny camera or a big camera, Mm -hmm. I actually don't think it really matters. Um, I think that often like there's another issue, like it's easy to focus on the equipment, but, you know, I think it's like someone might be getting stressed because like there hasn't been like, I mean, a subject because like there hasn't been like clear communication about what to expect or like about the hours or there's just so many different elements and sometimes it's just time um, so I feel like I'm often sort of pushing back on that because I've also taken like very large cameras into very sensitive and intimate situations and I feel like if it's about like it's about building the relationship it's about um, managing expectations um, you know I think another thing that I think a lot about we were talking about like you know how much like lighting do you bring into someone's home and then for Verite scenes like I think that for the most part, like even if someone has terrible lighting in their house, like maybe you turn off a light, maybe you swap out a bulb, but for the most part, you kind of roll with what is. And I think, I think that like for verité filmmaking, you have to kind of—it's a weird thing that you're doing. Like you're bringing a large camera into someone's like life and trying to act like it's normal, and it's not. It's totally weird. And I think that part of our like duties as filmmakers are to help teach people how to be okay with it and how to start forgetting about you and so one of the things that I think what I've noticed is that little things that you may ask someone to do train like what you want a verite subject to do is like not be performing for you and not be thinking about you so if you're asking them like hey can you like go through, can you like redo this exit or entry? Or like, can you like park your car here and not here? Like, can you sit here? Can you, okay, actually, can you guys switch? No, uh, can you actually go back? Like, um, or even like asking a lot of like interrupting with a lot of like kind of OTF questions, like on the fly mm-hmm. sort of interview questions. I think that like what what can happen is that people start thinking like, oh, what am I, where am I, what am I supposed to be doing? Like and i often feel like a lot of that intervention is like comes at like a very serious cost for the comfort and for for people to like forget people are naturally want to please and they want they want to give you what you want not that they're going to act for the camera but like you can make people self-conscious if you start sort of like futzing around too much and i think that i've had to fight this urge myself because often it's like trying to judge, like, okay, when when is it worth, like, intervening and saying, okay, can you sit here, the window light is nice, or can you move, or actually can we change this blind? Um, like, when is it worth worth the effort? Like, when do you, you know, you can people can get obsessed with entrances and exits, and then in the edit room you're just like, oh, we're just cutting right into the scene. And so mm-hmm. sometimes I think, like, there can be an over-obsession with getting someone's, To redo those things in a way that's actually not needed at all and I think can be um, sort of detrimental to, as I was saying, sort of like getting people to just do their thing and not be thinking about you. And I think also not, you know, one of the things I've noticed too is with like verite filmmaking, if you say you're filming someone like cooking a meal and then or doing any task and then at the end of it, they kind of like stare at you and they're like, "Okay, are we done? like when that's happening like there's something that's something is off because it's sort of like what you want to be doing is sort of setting an expectation almost like we're not like we're on we're off we're like okay now we're on for the camera okay now we're like off being real like yeah. that's sort of the camera is always rolling um, I mean, it's
2: tough because as video journalists or filmmakers we're trying to capture people in their natural state but I feel like most people's reaction to that is like, why would you want to film me having breakfast at my table or like they kind of have an idea of what they think that you want and you have maybe a different idea of what you want. And then there's also this pressure of if you're not just like making your own Verité film, if you're working on an assignment for the New York Times, they have a certain expectation and you only have a certain amount of time with this person. So you're trying to balance all those things I'm sure and I'm sure it's hard for a lot of people to just to be like, OK, just, you know, live live your life and I'll just be shadowing you with a camera. Like sometimes there's there's no time for that.
0: Yeah, I think I think it's really tricky. And I, I think that like a lot of the um, shorter forum content is sort of at odds with that because you you don't have the luxury of just like seeing what happens. Like you have a certain number of days that you need to shoot something and you have a certain number of like things that you need to shoot. I mean, I think that. You know, I think a lot of that comes down to the conversations that you have in advance about, like, kind of helping people understand, like, why—what you're doing and why. And often, yeah, people are like, why would you want to see me brushing my teeth or, like, getting up in the morning and and kind of just saying, like, you know, um, these are, like, the things we all do that, like, are really relatable. We're um, trying to, like, explain to people. Um, but I think that what you're describing, like— you have a certain number of days or you have to deliver an episode of something with like limited time and resources. I I think that um, thinking just really carefully, like what can I do to help this person, like to minimize direction. I think that With the shorter pieces, there can be like, okay, we need an entrance, we need this, like kind of almost like you're editing it in your mind or like there's sort of this like pre-visualization, which is so key because people have often, producers have often written like treatments and sort of like, you know, have pitched, you know, have, have pitched a certain idea where they're like imagining how things will unfold. Um, and almost like ticking off like a mental checklist of sort of like, it's OK, we like need it's this. storyboarded already. Yeah, like it's yeah. storyboarded. And I think that I think that these the two things are intention. Um, and I think, you know, I think a lot of what's described as like verite, um, especially in the context of these shorter form pieces, like, you know, it it isn't that. So how do you. How do you kind of capture something that feels authentic and real in within that constraint? And I think that that's really that can be really challenging. I mean, I think viewers really do know the difference. I think that when you're, I mean, where I just feel so alive and like what I love, and where I feel like my like real passion for being behind the camera comes out is like when something is truly unfolding in real time and people are going through something and the camera's observing Um, like that to me is like what it's all about sometimes there's the topic doesn't lend itself to like something that's really happening but I I think it's important there's some it's interesting I'm always shooting on different projects and I've worked with so many in so many different contexts I've done like you know industrials and corporate stuff and commercial stuff and um tr- hardcore verite and then the like quick turnaround like you know n- i've done news magazine so i feel like i've worked on s- in so many different contexts and and oftentimes i <laughs> you know i feel like i'm being asked to like really pull a rabbit out of a hat where like there's not good casting and there hasn't been there's nothing in- there's nothing interesting to shoot and the space is not interesting, and I mean, I think it's like in a narrative context. It's like if you have if you don't have a good script and you don't have good acting, it doesn't matter how good the cinematography is. The movie's going to suck. Yeah. Um, and I think the same thing is true for documentary. It's like if nothing's happening, um, and it's not like visual. You know, you can do beautiful cinematography, but it like it's still not going to be very good. Yeah. Um, Story is king. Yeah as they say well thank you so much vanessa <laughs> thank this you was
2: so interesting thanks so much for listening this podcast is hosted and produced by me jenny Butler. sky dylan robbins is our co-producer george itzak is our booking producer and our original music is by
1: zach wright And Rough Cut is a part of the Video Consortium, which is a creative community of the world's top emerging nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're scattered all around the globe, and we have chapters in New York, LA, San Francisco, Washington, DC, Milan, Paris, and with many more to come. If you want to join and become a member, check us out at videoconsortium.com. And if you want to learn more about Rough Cut, go to roughcutpodcast.com,
2: visit us on Instagram at roughcutpodcast, and go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, subscribe, and rate our show.